1: You're listening to a Roddenberry
2: podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Collide. Meet compliance objectives in a remote first world without resorting to rigid device management. Try Collide for 14 days free. Visit collide.com slash mission log to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 449 Faces.
3: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm one half of your hosts, Norman Lau, and that makes me the other half, John Champion. I guess, well, together that makes us a full show? Well, on today's episode, Faces, the one where Belana Torres comes face to face with Belana Torres, there's also a guy with someone else's face. It's, it's weird. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. All right. Okay. Well, I tell you what, I'll use
2: the power of my genetic engineering for trivia in a moment. But first, Norman, if you would
3: use the power of your genetic engineering to tell everybody how to get in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, faces, we have a story by Jonathan Glasner and Ken Biller.
2: Uh, These are new names for us here, but Ken Biller's is one that you should get to know. Uh, While he had racked up credits with Beverly Hills 90210 and The X-Files and other popular shows, he started early in Voyager's first season as executive story editor. This is his first on-screen writing credit with the franchise, but suffice to say that he's around, and there is a lot of him in Voyager's stories. Now, the pitch for the episode was actually Jonathan's, and he gave it to the producers before Ken came on board. That pitch really just centered on the premise that B'Elanna gets split into her Klingon and human halves, Oh, and it may not surprise you to hear that Jonathan Glasner has some very creepy writing credits in his history, shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, the 80s version, that is, and Freddy's Nightmares. And- Oh, uh, Norman, I believe that you're a
3: fan of his for another reason, too. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here for a second. So, you know, with the tone of this, you would think that this would be a Brandon Braga written episode. It's (laughs) not. Very much so, right? Yeah. But I also wanted to jump in because as a huge Stargate SG-1 fan, this is the only credit, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on whether or not he would have gone to develop Stargate after this. This is one of the only credit for Jonathan's, and he's— best known for Stargate SG-1, and then also well-known for the 1990s version of The Outer Limits. There you go. Perfect. So he gets that
2: uh, half-story credit with Ken Biller, and then the teleplay credit entirely goes to Ken Biller. And that makes sense, because the initial premise was one that, honestly, the production staff weren't really thrilled about. But Ken saw the potential, and it was his development with the others that brought in the Vidian storyline. Incidentally, he worked on the script after finishing his script for a season two episode of the series. So you might imagine that there was a little bit of a crunch to finish this one after the concept had been passed around a little bit. It was directed by Wiener Colby, and we most recently covered one of Rick's episodes with Eye of the Needle. Now, it's worth noting that Star Trek budgets fluctuate so, uh, so much over the years. Uh, TNG had a sizable budget uh, for its day day DS9 overall was lower than TNG. And now here we are with Voyager, and despite its very expensive pilot, it has relatively lower budgets per episode. Now, Rick had originally envisioned the action of this episode taking place on a jungle planet, but, yep, that's too expensive. So it was back to the standing cave sets to rein it in. Uh, there were a few extras used, and he regretted that the worksite didn't look busy enough in the end. But one place that helped with the budget was in casting, and uh, we'll talk about that right now with our guest cast. So one who is not credited is actually there for a lot of hours on every show anyway, and that would be Roxanne Dawson's photo double, Joy Kilpatrick. She looked uh, just remarkably enough, like Roxanne, that there was very little split screen or other costly effects that needed to be done for this episode. So you combine her with another unsung hero, that would be stunt double Lynn Salvatore, and the production could keep moving along, given that they had the coverage they needed once Roxanne was in one makeup or the other, you know, Klingon or human for the day. There's an unnamed Talaxian who is a prisoner here. He's played by Rob LaBelle, and it just so happens that he was great friends with Ken Biller. He is also a huge Star Trek fan, and he had to keep both of those things quiet when he went in for the casting to make sure he didn't blow his chances. Well, he was well-liked enough that Rob got to come back for two more Trek appearances. We'll get to those both in Voyager. In addition, he's an actor who works a lot on series and in features. You may have remembered him as Wally in Watchmen, and he shows up on uh, The Man in the High Castle and the 4400 and the current iteration of Lost in Space and just so much more. We also have Brian Markinson returning in this episode as Pete Durst. You remember him, right? We just met Brian and the character that he plays in the last episode, Cthexus. So that must mean that they like him enough that they'll just keep bringing him back many, many more times. Uh, Oh, and uh, also appearing in this episode is uh, Brian Markinson. Yeah, uh, same guy pulling a total Jeffrey Combs maneuver and playing another character or another species at the same time. That would be the Vidian Sulan.
1: Another day, another away team left on another unknown planet. I'm sure that'll turn out fine, just like always.
2: Prologue. Voices from unseen aliens call out orders about regeneration on a machine, and on that machine, an exhausted, dazed, fully Klingon woman looks up, responding to the name Belana Torres. Act 1. On Voyager, Tuvok turns up his nose at Neelix's creative take on Plomik Soup, while Captain Janeway prepares for what she thinks will be the return of Torres, Paris, and Durst from an away mission. They were on the third planet, investigating magnesite deposits, but they're not at the beam-out point. Curiously, Harry Kim notices that the geologic layout of those caves has actually changed since the time they first got there. (laughs) Like, by an astounding degree, did they get trapped? Chakotay will take a team to investigate, and Kim will bring along some transponders to serve as a link back to the ship, just in case they get trapped too. What they don't know is that deep within the planet, Balana is currently being monologued by a Vidian called Sulan. He sent her through a device called a genitron to express her purely Klingon DNA in the hopes of finding a species that is naturally resistant to the phage that ravages the Vidians, just to make sure he has infected her with it. As one might guess, a newly 100% Klingon Balana is in no way okay with this plan, or being used for it. Elsewhere in this facility, Paris and Durst are marched with other prisoners to their holding area. Their goal is to figure out where Balana is and make their escape, a pretty amusing plan according to their Talaxian cellmate, who says that no one gets out of here. If they lost track of Balana, it means her organs have probably been harvested. Anyone else who is strong enough sticks around to do labor, like digging tunnels. When the three from Voyager beam in, they successfully set up the transponders, but they don't find their crewmates. What they do find is a broken tricorder and traces of at least two more humanoids than should have been there. Sulan is now at work studying Balana's intense pain response. She's feeling it. She's plenty angry, but she's successfully fighting the phage. Sulan announces that he'll use this breakthrough to somehow integrate part of the Klingon DNA code into their own and fight the phage that way. True to form, Balana says that a Klingon would rather die on the battlefield than be lauded as the supposed hero who saved the Vidians with her genes. Still, Sulan is fascinated by Klingons and by Balana in particular. Still not faring well are the folks in that detention cell, but Tom Paris has a visitor. It's Balana. But this Bolana is human and distinctly lacking in those telltale Klingon ridges. Act 2. So, hi, and who are you? She's the version of B'Elanna that has gone through the Genitron and had all the Klingon DNA extracted, so she's 100% human. And she's having a bit of trouble coping with this, as it brings back the very difficult memories of being one of the only Klingons in a Federation colony and her shame about being different. Checking on the away team, they've made a breakthrough by discovering that the cave they're in is still changing its configuration. It's not tectonic It's a construct, a force field designed to throw them off, and it just so happens to be one of Vidian design. Phaser fire doesn't cut through, and as soon as some lurking Vidians show up, these three beam back to the safety of Voyager. Klingon Balana is still restrained and still being studied by Sulan. She's working a new angle, though. That she's enjoying this feeling of being Klingon, and by the way, did he know that Klingons are known throughout her quadrant for their sexual prowess? Sulan is intrigued. He reaches out, then retracts his hand. He knows what the Vidians have become, and he hopes that if he's successful, that he won't disgust her in the way that he does now. Act 3. The Vidian guards show up in the holding area to take Durst to see the prefect. Something about contacting his ship, but Paris jumps in saying that he's the senior officer here. Nonetheless, the guard pushes him away and takes Durst instead, leaving Paris to comfort a visibly shaken, terrified Bellana. Back on Voyager, the only concern is to get their people out of Vidian hands as soon as possible before reinforcements show up. That means finding a way to breach the phaser resistant force field. Klingon Balana is still restrained to an examination table. Then Sulan comes in with a surprise. Remember our old friend Durst, who was taken to see the prefect? Yeah, that was a total lie. His organs were harvested to save some more Vedians, but Sulan saved the best part for himself. He reveals to Balana that he is now wearing Durst's face as his own. If that was meant to be a romantic gesture, it failed. Balana, more incensed than ever, breaks through the restraints and nearly breaks Ceylon's neck, but for the approaching footsteps, which send her running away. Act 4 Doing some science has opened up a potential advantage for Voyager. That Vidian force field has micro fissures every time they hit it with phasers, so maybe an opening big enough to beam someone in who can find the missing crew and shut down the force field from the inside. Chakotay volunteers, and he'll do it incognito as a Vidian, thanks to the doctor's handy plastic surgery and Tuvok's tailoring skills with a replicator. He'd better hurry. Because human Balana is having a tough time, what with the whole workload and the psychological stress of being a weaker version of herself, in her estimation both physically and mentally. Tom tries to talk her through her feelings of cowardice, but soon a Vidian guard takes her away back to the worker barracks. Chakotay, disguised as a Vidian, successfully beams in behind the force field, and around that time the Klingon half of Balana has escaped into the tunnels she finds a talaxian who says tom got moved to another tunnel but there is a human female who got taken away by the guards cut to human balana in the barracks just waiting for her guards to slip away long enough that she can hop on a computer console they do and she does but not for long because the guards come back and catch her who should come to the rescue though Klingon Balana taking down the Vidian guards and surprising Human Balana so much that she faints. Act 5. Klingon and Human Balana get to know each other, hiding out in a tunnel. The two halves are at odds with the Klingon side being headstrong and impulsive, not to mention ready for violent attack on their captors. The human side is more cautious, hesitant to act if it would get them into trouble. But Human Balana made a little headway at the computer finding a possible way to shut down the Vidian force field, they could all escape if they worked together. Chakotay makes his way in to find Tom, and he has to think quickly to bypass a Vidian superior, so he makes up a story about taking this prisoner to organ processing. Back in the lab where she was being held, Klingon Belana has taken her human half to a computer console to see if she can shut down the force field, that's all well and good until the alarms start blaring. While Balana keeps working on the computer, Balana fights off of Adean. Sulan then enters with his weapon drawn, until Chakotay and Tom make their way in to tip the odds in their favor. Durst drops his weapon. Balana succeeds in lowering the force field, but Sulan pulls a weapon he was hiding behind his back. He aims at Human Balana, but Klingon Balana throws herself in harm's way as he fires. Sulan is horrified by what he's done, but Voyager beams the crew out before he can act. On board, Klingon Balana can't be saved. But now human B'Elanna faces a conundrum. For once in her life, she feels at peace. But she's incomplete. She needs to be reincorporated with her Klingon side, which is just what the Doctor will do after some genetic wizardry. If he didn't, this purely human B'Elanna would die. In tears... Alana realizes that in order to live, she has to again become one with the conflicted, painful part of herself. The end.
3: A fantastic recap there, John. And I'm I'm really glad that you were able to endure one of the longest cold openings in the history of <laughs> Voyager.
2: <laughs> I, was, I, I, I watched that I watched it once, and I, I just kind of forgot. Then I went back, and I uh, when I was writing the recap, I was like, Wait, was it really that short? <laughs> Wait, it really was, was that short. Just it that really reveal, was. you know, which, which honestly is so slick and smooth in film time. It like it takes longer to write it than it does just to see it. You oh, know? yeah. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. But good. Not the shortest, not the shortest in Star Trek history, not even the shortest in Voyager history, but very short. Definitely. Yeah. And look, I need to just come right out and say something that amuses me so much. Of all the technic babble that, that we need to accept when it comes to Star Trek, you just gotta accept it, people. It's fine. I will probably never get past how funny I think the Genitron sounds. Like, I, I would have made that up as a joke prop to have in a story. If they hadn't called it that, then I would have made that up as a joke. Like, uh, what do we call the genetic manipulation machine? Uh, uh, how about the Genitron 2000? Because it's it's better than the Genitron 1000, so get get the new Genitron, not the old one. The next-gen Genitron? Is that what you're saying? Next-gen Genitron. Yes, yeah. yes.
3: It slices, it dices. <laughs> so it Makes mounds and mounds of julienne fries. The Avery system. So yeah. is this where... The Prophet Cisco ended up after disappearing from Deep Space Nine far into the Delta Quadrant into the Avery system? See, that's just a little selfish, but yeah, why not? Also, <laughs> why not? how do you know what system you're in if you've never been in the Delta Quadrant before? Ooh, that's, so I guess they just got to call
2: it that. They just, uh, we're we're now in, we're just, well, we're going to call this the Avery
3: system. Okay, so they're doing it can. like alphabetically. So the next system would be the, uh, I don't know, the Bashir system. Bashir, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. There right. you go. For B.
2: Well, I, I mean, look, they were going to name an anomaly after uh, Harry Kim, but then that got retracted. So, right. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That That's funny. They can just name anything they want. But but here's the thing. They do make contact with people. They do get some names like, uh, like these species they encounter, like the Vidians, which, again, makes me question, why are they doing all these surveys broken up? sending away people for like a long period of time oh i guess it's time to go back and get them like no no you're in the delta quadrant. your job is to get home so just beam people down how about with some transponders
3: and then beam them out Isn't it weird? Like, sometimes you have these weird back-to-back kind of clusters of episodes. Before it was hologram or holodeck clusters, and now it's, why are you sending people on missions that put them in danger because they're so far away from the ship clusters?
2: Right, right, right. Just Mm -hmm. keep keep going like if you had to drive cross country and you had to do that in a certain amount of time or you just you know you didn't want to take it too long you didn't want it to take seven years you're not going to stop and investigate every abandoned stuckies on the way maybe (laughs) maybe one or two maybe a howard johnson's but not every single one especially if it looks like he might get killed in there Plus you just, one you don't for stickies. Well, yeah, then. you yeah. don't do it. Fun bit with Neelix and Tuvok. I, I did like, now the plumique soup here looks like tomato soup. And, it, you know, look, it, it's an interesting take on whether creative license is really wanted or needed in interpreting a dish. So could have been a, a fun, longer conversation there.
3: Logic dictates if you change the recipe, you change the home-cooked comfort aspect of the food that's why you have sauces and spices on the side
2: yeah uh, there
3: ooh, there you go there you go sauce on the side
2: now I, I, this may come up again later but uh, Bellana's Klingon take her, her voice for, I know that she's getting used to being Klingon and certainly just as an actor you have the teeth in and I know that the character is under stress and she's trying to figure out what happened but she just sounds strange to me
3: Yeah, I think character-wise and and actor-wise, I think that Roxanne was just struggling a little bit with the whole full Klingon element of her character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Vidian makeup, especially Salon's, you know, before he goes full Hannibal Lecter, you know, it's really, really good. I mean, it's yeah. really, really well done. Uh, the surgery bay is well done, even though, like, his scanner at the beginning is, like, come on, folks, we're no fools. That was a dental x-ray scanner, <laughs> right? right? I mean, it <laughs> yes. had the, the, <laughs> the hydraulic arm boom and everything. It totally did, yeah. yeah. Weird thing, though. Uh, these are the things, observations, that kind of make you go, hmm. so he turns her genome into pure Klingon. Yeah, but doesn't know how to extract her age. Mm hmm. How do we resolve this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he literally has That's... the building blocks of her DNA sequence and can't reverse engineer how old she is.
2: Yeah, it, it's right. Or, or how would he even know that she's a Klingon? I, like, like, nobody gave him that information. How would he know in encountering her that that just isn't what that species looks like? Why would he assume that she is half of one, half of the other? She, you know, bolana just has the Bellana genome. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, I well, I think we'll continue to talk about that. There's a lot that we have to swallow with this episode. And then, you know, does does that work? Well, we'll find out. I, I do love, <laughs> man, there's this scene. B'Elanna, uh human Bellana, is just breaking down i, I think Roxana is really great as human bolana struggling mm-hmm. with all of this and tom paris turns to human B'lana and says you know when i was a kid i used to wear a cap to hide the haircuts my dad would give me each summer dude tom paris your sympathy game is terrible <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like like she is having this existential crisis like
3: yeah well let me tell you about mine mm-hmm. no that's not how you play that tom <laughs> not good well, speaking of wearing caps to hide their bad haircuts, right? Yes. So there is a very Spock-like connection with the way that Belana is trying to hide her one half or the other you know, when she was on Keswick 4. So yeah. hat or not, there is a definitely kind of like a Spock connection where you're like, I'm ashamed of being half of this or half of this. I thought that was very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Right. Right. And. I know that they're in a cell, but don't you think that if you saw that new Talaxian, you know, I'm going to call him new guy Talaxian. New guy Talaxian, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't Tom say, like, I know a guy who looks just like you. (laughs) Can can you cook, by the way? Right. Do you know... Do you know Neelix? Do all Talaxians look the same? Is right. it me? Right. You know, am yeah. I being that guy? But I just need to tell you. Yes. None uh, of that you, came you, you, uh, Maybe it was <laughs> at a script page that didn't get filmed. You know? Oh, my
2: gosh. I, oh, and, and it just is sort of a, a blocking directorial thing. Uh, Klingon Balana's escape from the examination, you know, restraint bed. It was not good it 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 was it was slow it was awkward it just kind of happens because the script calls for it like you see you see the restraints and they had that big bolt that big pin to hold Mm -hmm. the the hinge together and she's sort of struggling with it and then the next shot it's just open and she has time to reach over and unpin the other one so she can go after sulan it it's it it, it's not great like i I know you got to work through it for the script you just you have to get to the next moment in the script but it was not so good. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of
3: next moments in this for the script saying yeah, there in are. this episode. There are. Uh, yeah. but one thing I did like though, I liked Tom stepping up and like taking it as the leader for the team. Like I'm the leader. If anything's gonna be done, it's gonna be done to me first. This is and Sex Post Facto wasn't like that long ago. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah, like three yeah, or yeah. four episodes ago. That's a completely different Tom Paris. Thing. I'm so bored <laughs> right. with my duties as a Starfleet officer to this where you're like yeah you're a Starfleet officer here's a guy who's got some leadership exactly yeah 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 Yeah. very great great change in the way they wrote him in this episode yeah
2: all right let's look for for anything where we might slight this episode in any way that reveal that reveal of Sulan with Durst face fabulously creepy I mean hands down just a freaking great reveal Bravo! Well, well scripted, well acted, well shot. You don't get a lot of moments like that in Star Trek, and this was a
3: cool one. It was like Hellraiser level yeah. of good, right? Yeah. I mean, think about yeah. it. It's like a weird kind of uh, a weird kind of dynamic in in terms of prosthetic makeup. So you have, you know, they have the actor's face playing the Vedian, playing the Vedian with the victim's face with Durst's right. face. Right. That is that's like. John, it's three-dimensional chess. Chess in three dimensions. Three, not, not two. Three dimensions nope, three right dimensions. there. Cut back to Voyager.
2: Next time I need a tailor, I'll know where to look. Chakotay says that to Tuvok. And oh, I'm just, I, I, see, now I'm missing Garrick. You know, now I'm missing a guy like Garrick to harass the crew, but uh, at least uh, we have sort of the
3: ersatz Taylor on board. I mean, I'm glad that they had a little bit of comedy because it's a pretty dark episode. You know, when the doctor says, if you think this is remarkable, you should see me remove a bunion. Thank you for having that line in there. Because like after yeah. this line, a lot of darkness happens.
2: Yes, yes,
3: you do need that. Yeah. Look, you know that I love it whenever we get
2: 24th century plastic surgery. But I, again, I, I have to say the Vidians, they're missing out by not cooperating with Voyager. Like they started all of this on a bad foot. They can't see that if they approach with a little humility, look, maybe they could get their own dermal regenerator. You know, there, there are things that uh, the Voyager could offer to them, but they're just
3: a little too... Uh, Dedicated to the horrors of their own actions. And how's Voyager ever going to get the Genetatron 3000 if they don't? See, they, they won't. Yeah, they won't. You, mm-hmm. you got to get that. You got to get the doctor working on it. Tom has this
2: nice little talk with Human Bellana about courage. And then a Vidian guard takes her away to the barracks, at which point she says she can try to make contact with the ship. While the guard is right there when she am right here, (laughs) like, dude, dude, I'm I'm right here. I'm right here. (laughs) And by the way, why would there be a computer console anywhere near their holding area? Those barracks like, no, 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 you, you put that in a different section. Thank you very much. Or you keep a guard on
3: it at all John, times, John. The the, the Vidians—they're geneticists, not—they're uh, not logisticists.
2: They're—they're they're, they're not right. strategists. Yes, yeah. exactly. I I do like uh, when Chicote is incognito and he's uh, he's getting challenged by the Vidian uh, superior. Why wasn't I notified? I was told you had been. <laughs> that <that's, laughs> that that is just—it's so stupidly simple and
3: perfect. like I, Helpful for every day. I love a flawless bit of dialogue like that. I've never met you before. You've met me now
0: yeah,
3: okay. sure. <laughs> right. yeah All right why not Mo- sure moving okay. on moving yeah. on yeah it's so good but meanwhile okay i hate dialogue like this
2: is a scene where human balada just says loud, i have to bypass the security code so i can access the force field grid just like just just announcing to everybody what you're doing that's uh you, you didn't need that in the script fellas could have saved a couple of seconds
1: Is it just me? Or do you want to tell Salon to wipe the face off his face too?
2: We'll get right back to faces after a few words from this week's sponsors. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Right inside Slack. You're using Slack. You get your recommendations right there. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point that they become completely unusable for their employees. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing
3: them to fix important problems. So here's how you do this. So you visit collide.com slash mission log to sign up today. That's dot com slash mission log. Enter your email when prompted to receive your free collide gift bundle after trial activation at collide. We know end users are it admin's most significant untapped resources and key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including instructing developers to set passphrases on uncrypted SSH keys finding plain text two factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely and convincing employees to install evil browser extensions evil like extension. avil and evil browser <laughs> extensions that may sell their browser history Now, those are just
2: some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash
3: mission log. Okay, John, so we're going to jump, like, right into the observations because... As, yeah, as an episode, there, there are so many interesting things that are happening with one specific character, and that is Belana Torres. But I also want to talk about Roxanne a little bit and mm-hmm. how how she approached it and then some interesting psychoanalysis that happened like in this episode. Maybe I'm reaching yeah. a little bit too much. Maybe I'm not. We'll see. We'll see what the audience thinks. We'll see what you think. So mm-hmm. I don't want to knock Roxanne as an actor. I think she's a fabulous actor and, and does an incredible job bringing Torres to life. But in this episode, because I think that she hasn't had time playing a fully nuanced Klingon character, it tends to come off a little, pardon the pun, rubbery, because yeah. it, uh, she's struggling with the prosthetics. She's struggling with the teeth. Not like, say, you know, Barbara March and, and Gwyneth Walsh did as, as Lursa and Bator. <laughs> they, they They perfected working through those prosthetics and teeth you said this in the beginning in your, in your, um, in your notes that you felt their uh, Roxanne's voice wasn't quite right. And she wasn't delivering her performance quite right. And I think that that happened because of this, but on the other side of the equation, removing all of that literally from her, like literally the prosthetics mm-hmm. and teeth and working with just the human version of Roxanne's Balana,
0: mm-hmm.
3: I thought her performance in this episode was probably the best that she's turned in on Voyager so far, but yeah. All of that being said, all that yeah. being said, and, and I'll give you a chance to uh, answer in one second. I really think that those two, those two ways of seeing Bellana, kind of um, inform what I think they were trying to get to overall, and that's the id, the ego, and the super ego dynamic of her character. So, so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just to put it into reference, if people aren't familiar with yep. this, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to voyager explain anything to anyone, but I just want to put it into reference. <laughs> so according yep. to Freud's psychoanalytic theory and how it applies to this episode, human bilana is the superego who operates at a moral conscience. Klingon balana is the id, the primitive and instinctual part of... Her mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. So when you combine those two, as you saw later in the episode, the ego is the realistic part, i.e. the full balana, that mediates between the desires of the id and the superego. That's where I think this episode has a lot of value. That's where I was trying to get at when this whole preamble. Interesting. Interesting. So,
2: yeah, let, let me go back to some of those points that you made, because I, I think there is a choice made here in this episode, which is, all right, Balana has just always been Balana, half Klingon, half human. And now when we split those up, those halves have to be distinct in, in how they're played. But Balana, as we know her, has at no point in her life been wholly Klingon or wholly comfortable with the idea of being Klingon. So there there's a choice made here about how she plays it, and it has to do with some of the the body language. It has to do with the speech pattern. It has to do with all of those. And, and also probably just the, the realism, the production realism of you have all this stuff on your head. You got the teeth in. You have all of this stuff. But it also makes it a little... Um, it it, it just yeah it feels a bit false Mm -hmm. when you're watching it and maybe another choice maybe she doesn't come out fully realized as you know one of the other klingon women that we've met before but something that is a little more grounded as herself uh we would have had an easier time buying that but because then it's just strange you you watch it Thinking you're in your head when you watch it. Why is she talking like this? Why why does she sound this way and not the way that it just feels a little more that, like she's at ease being a Klingon? Um, because that's sort of one of the weird conceits about this, which is even though these are two separate beings with two separate genomes, they have the same memories. <laughs> they oh, I will get same... to that later on for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the same set of experiences up to the point that they get captured by the Vidians and separated by the Genitron 2000, trademark, copyright, patent pending. So, yeah, so it's a lot to ask to say that, well, this version can... physically kind of you know move about speak the way that she speaks as a human but as a klingon like none of that actually comes together quite well you do you do see her get a little more settled as a klingon as the episode goes on but it's just a strange choice the way that she is as uh, disjointed as a klingon early on so i I i see what you mean there it is strange now To your point about this Freudian model, id, ego, ego, superego, that's an an interesting thing. I mean, immediately my head goes to the enemy within. And and it's another moment of Star Trek asking us to swallow this hugely implausible concept. (laughs) But... It's all in the service of the storytelling to talk about the actual point. And in The Enemy Within, you know, that whole point was you have to have those two sides. You have to reconcile these competing forces in your psyche in order to be a whole person. And it doesn't mean repressing one of those sides. It means letting them somehow... Find a way to live together and, and mediate and moderate those impulses. Yeah. And that's what's happening here, very much like the enemy within. And I think that Freudian model fits very nicely as well. This is you can't have all id. You can't have all ego. You have to have a moderating force. You have to have a compassionate yet rational Thoughtful side that can figure out how to make these forces uh, not destroy each other. So I, I, I think that's all very interesting. But again, we get to this difficult thing where we are asked to to accept that all of those memories still exist and what is this purely a physical construct uh, of these two balanas. You had a problem with that as well.
3: I did, and I'm <laughs> gonna I'm gonna actually address that a little bit more um, in, in depth, like in uh, in the next segment. But okay, fair. I needed to mm-hmm. ask you this, and uh, I'm not gonna perform this because I can't perform. Uh, Kate Mulgrew's voice, but I am going to quote, <laughs> I'm going to go something very, very specific. And I really want to hear your take on it. And I'm very interested in hearing the audience's take on this as well. Take a message to your people. If I ever encounter your kind again, I will do whatever is necessary to protect my people from this harvesting of yours. Any aggressive actions against this ship or its crew will be met by the deadliest force. Is that clear? So I ask you, John, I ask you this. Yes. Do we remember this amazing speech from Janeway from the end of Phage? Well, apparently the writers and producers of Voyager didn't. Because Um. (laughs) none of that happened. Right?
2: Yeah. Uh, I am going to second you there. Uh, absolutely on the same page. That That is something that is missing from this episode, and that is a strong Janeway presence. Mm-hmm. There was a note that I didn't get to in the last segment because I, I didn't want that last segment to run too long. But, like, there's a good moment of Janeway. Uh, there are a couple of good moments. She's leading her crew to figure out a solution. And th- there's a moment of her body language that I thought was very interesting where she's in the conference room and there, there's an empty chair and there's a chair where Tuvok is seated and she just kind of puts both of her arms around the backs of those chairs. And, and it's something that is very at ease but also very commanding. And this is the way that I like to see Janeway. But I wanted to see more of Janeway in this episode really, truly taking command. I understand that we can't, in some respect, because our crew is cut off, cut off by communication, cut off by by any really usable way to have Voyager come in and save the day. But I want to see her take action. And we definitely don't get enough of that here. That speech at the end of Phage, truly one of her defining moments, particularly this early on in the series. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And you want to see that person come back. Oh hell no!
3: <laughs> you did not just capture some of my crew. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. and you know, if yeah. you want to look at this for very specifically, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to hang kind of like my issue with with you know uh, not following up on this incredibly specified threat to the Vizians. I don't put that on Janeway because she's a fictional character. I put this on the writers. Yeah. Yeah. And the writers should have known, should have understood that speech going into this episode, because when you don't make good on promises to this race, who has done this already to a crew member of yours in the past, in the recent past, and we're talking about Neelix and his lungs, regardless Mm -hmm. of what they did to Durst and his face and the rest of his organs, she just made Voyager a softer target into the Delta quadrant. This was like the perfect opportunity to show that she and Voyager are not to be trifled with, if she actually did respond with "quote unquote" deadly force, I know that that's not the Starfleet way, but this is the this is the promise that she made to the Vidians at the end of Phage. Now her position has been weakened. What if the Vidians yeah. are like the softest enemy race in the Delta Quadrant, and all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, Voyager, just let us go again." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, we right. basically just killed like yeah. a couple more of their crewmen, and they let us go again, again. So all of you, yeah. like, higher races, go yeah. for it because Guess you what? can.
2: Open right. season, folks. Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm going to talk a little bit about
2: the, uh, well, Bolana's arc and particularly human Bolana's arc in this. And, I, it, you know, it, it was such a nice scene with uh, Tom. Basically, I mean, giving her some pretty obvious advice, but I, it, it bears repeating, courage doesn't mean that you don't have fear. It means that you've learned to overcome it. That it, it's good advice. It doesn't mean that it's something that she can just sort of uh, absorb and then that changes everything. But she she learns it by doing it, which is nice to see. And she does have these moments of courage. I think, given the right circumstance of the right encouragement by him, but also by Klingon Bolana, Klingon Bolana, I think actually takes the uh, the hint, takes the suggestion that they do have to work together. And that then empowers human Balana a bit. But then we get to the very end. We get to the very end with human Balana crying. And 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 I, I think beautifully acted. She's touching her smooth forehead and seemingly just dreading going back to who she was. And it's a short scene that I think could could bear all kinds of analysis, because you have to wonder what all is going on inside of her that has gotten her to this point. There is the, the physical stress aspect of what she has gone through and what she will go through. There is the mental stress aspect of sort of reintroducing all of the past experiences. And I think one of these past experiences that's so profound here is shame. And you mentioned Spock earlier. Spock, uh, who, who we know was uh, uh, shamed and uh, bullied and abused by his peers as a child because of just who he is, being half human, half Vulcan. And now we have Belana filling that role, half human, half Klingon, which of course. Politically, socially is going to be even more difficult for somebody growing up at the time that she grew up. I was really moved by that. I was really moved by the idea that this has been such a burden for her that she clearly hasn't settled into comfort with who she is, which is tragic anyway, but then doubly tragic that she is forced to go back to that. Not, not by an outside hand. I mean, the doctor is doing what he has to do to save her life. That is a contrivance of the show to say, no, no, you have to live this way. But that it then causes so much stress and pain and anguish for her. Mm-hmm. I asked myself, what if it was the Klingon half that survived? Would she have accepted a procedure to make her half human? Or would she have said... No, I'd rather die, Klingon, this is who I am, than have some artificial means mold me back into something else. Right? You know, what? what is the artificial construct at that point? Is it the half-human, half-Klingon? Or is it the one who just
3: survived because they happened to survive? Well, there has to be something in both of their natures to... Need the other half in order to survive. You have to have some type of, I'm not even sure if it can be described in, in terms of that pull, that pull, that need, that desire, or the uh, that biological response to say, you know what? And I know the Klingon half would probably fight that urge probably a little bit stronger, but mm-hmm. even that Klingon half would be, that pull would be so deep biologically that they would have to say, I can't do it. You know, I I can't be this person without the other half of me. I can't be whole without, and I'm missing something so important, so profound, like so powerful that I have to have that. Even though I know it's going to make me weaker in some way, that makes me whole in more ways than the weakness. (laughs) I really
1: feel for Bellana. I got split into two computers once. You can't imagine the arguments we had over network bandwidth.
3: Here we are, John, at the end of the episode. And it's our job to see if we can re-genetically sequence our thoughts and our notes with the Genetatron 2000.
2: I'm, I'm going to have to spend at least another 10 to 20 minutes in a Genitron, easily, maybe
3: a, a four or 5,000 model
2: at this point.
3: You Ooh, know, just little, to bring up yeah. our energy back, would it be the Genitron or maybe the newer model, the Regenitron? Oh, definitely a Regenitron at this point. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it takes a lot out of you doing Mission Log. It so, does. Oh, and uh, <laughs> you know, we were looking at the morals, meanings, and messages obviously towards the end of this episode, but we're going to start off with... Does this episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And what do we have to say about it, John?
2: Well, okay. I mean, first of all, I, I think you have to acknowledge the references, the the commonality this episode has with other stories. I mentioned The Enemy Within. Great Star Trek episode. Again, it asks you to buy a kind of a crazy premise, but then you have to go with it. With the idea that there is something of substance there to really think about, really talk about after the fact, we also have to say, you know, look, there are shades of Beauty and the Beast, shades of Phantom of the Opera. These are all kind of ongoing literary themes that have been explored, but then we get to do do it freshly and anew here in Voyager. So do these old stories hold up? when presented in this new sci-fi context with this series. And I think it really depends on the lens that we're using to look at the episode and uh, well, that is exactly why this part of the show gets to be vague and purely subjective. I mean, it is it is always, always and forever a your mileage may vary situation. Uh, I think Brian Markinson is wonderfully creepy as Sulan and they made a strong, good choice to amp up that creepiness by letting him have this weird infatuation with Klingon Balana. That that was I I think every level that he played that was earned and very solid. Uh, so good choices on on all of those impulses there. And there's also the innate creativity in letting Belana come face-to-face with herself. You know, again... Science fiction, uh, there is no genitron, there are no Klingons uh, in oh, real life. I know, I know, I'm sorry to say it. Okay, Shattered. But, <laughs> but what we have is a great metaphor for looking at aspects of our personalities and seeing how they work together or in some cases fight each other to uncomfortable extremes. That's what sci-fi in general and what Star Trek in particular are good at. Now, the weaknesses of this telling of this particular episode for me is that, well, I feel like we didn't really live up to the promise yet of who the Vidians are. More to your point, Norman, what is Janeway's relationship to the Vidians as enemies, as something to be feared and dealt with? Are they just mustache-twirling villains now, or are we getting the, the best out of that matchup that we should be getting. Will we see them again? Is there more to be mined out of their purpose and their interaction with the Voyager crew? I'm, I'm curious, but I kind of feel like this is another episode where the action feels very isolated from everything else that has gone on and won't have much consequence going forward. So it's sort of invent the terrible situation of the week to make sure we get the crew trapped and then get them out. And, and then move on and I think there's more to be had out of this than just that because the Vidians are interesting and terrifying so Balana's storyline here really saves it uh, but only to an extent I, I don't think it is a great version of this enemy within type story but it is a passable one uh, if if we let it inform Balana going forward and that's what remains to be seen because now we've revealed way greater depths about Belana and this kind of self-hatred that she has how much more will we get out of that and how far will her arc take her in dealing with it so I marginally I would say that this passes only because of what we get out of her mm-hmm. and hey look for the creepy factor the creepy factor is, is great but I, I think there's more to have been done with that story. So uh, what
3: have you got, Norman? I mean, I don't really have a lot more to add because I am, I'm really on board with uh, all the points that you're saying here. It's it's almost an, um, an unremarkable episode if, it aren't, uh, if it's not for her performance, Roxanne's performance, and for some of the powerful messages that are difficult to mind but are definitely there. And I think that uh, the darkness in the Delta Quadrant is definitely there. There is, uh, there is, a sense of threat that they really should be running from faster instead of sending out these shuttle missions. Like you said, there is yeah. a definite threat with the Vidians. But just like the, the great adage or uh, the the great um, the way that they describe uh, heroes and villains, you know, in narrative fiction, your heroes are only as good as your villains. If your villains are toothless, yeah. your heroes don't really have a lot of purpose or meaning. You have to push your heroes through the machinations of how powerful your villains are and the sway that they have over the environments that they create. So, if the Vedeans are in fact turning into these mustache twirling villains, that's all they're ever going to be. They're all they're just going to be mm-hmm. paper tigers of a far more significant shadow that they can cast over the entirety of the series so far and in phage that was handled way better in my opinion than it was handled here because there was a resolution at the end of Janeway's uh steal you know I'm going Mm -hmm. to do this the next time I see you if these conditions are met and they were met in this episode and she did nothing about it that's what takes Janeway down a peg in this episode. It takes her character down a peg. It takes her motivation yeah, yeah. down yeah. a peg. And I think that that's something that weighs heavily on whether or not I can recommend this episode. Now, what really works, again, the darkness aspect. I really like the whole Silence of the Lambs feel with Salon oh, yeah. and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yep. and uh, Klingon B'Elanna. I, I thought that that relationship was wonderfully perverted and dark and Became incredibly perverted and dark as soon as they got yeah. a hold of Durst's face, Durst's face. <laughs> but also, I really do think the surprise, the MVP character in this episode is Tom Paris, and what they did with him and how they reframed him from Caretaker. Essentially, this is the Tom Paris that I always yeah. wanted to see since Caretaker, where he was a little bit more heroic, he was a little bit more protective, he was a leader instead of the you know kind of like the um, the immature fraternity flyboy that he's been portrayed as in the last few episodes, especially in Ex Post Facto. So the line when he said, sometimes fear can be a good thing, keeping you it keeps you from taking chances. Courage doesn't mean that you don't have fear. It means that you've learned to overcome it. That's a great line, and they gave it to him and Robbie performed it beautifully. Yeah, This is the Tom yeah. Paris I hope we get to see moving forward. So there's a lot of hope in where they can bring balana's character and how she reconciles herself and then the storylines that come from this but especially with tom where do it's you? Probably, it, it took him 14 episodes to figure out <laughs> tom i know paris but here, right? now we we have a formula yeah. to work with right yeah. and this yeah. is the formula i hope that they continue with because this tom paris is far more fascinating than anything i think that we've seen so far yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean when we look at morals,
2: meanings, messages, you know, I, I think there are a couple of ideas to explore here, and I sort of look at it as the two the, the, the two things we're dealing with in the story. There's the Vedian side and then there's Balana. And when we look at the the Videans, you know, Star Trek has always done this very good job of taking an enemy. And asking us, the audience, in the shoes of Starfleet, to say, well, how much sympathy do we have for the enemy? How much understanding do we have for the enemy? And... Um, the Vidians have been made out to be these incredible monsters who every now and then they'll they'll slip in this line like, oh, we're aware of who we are. We were desperate. We did these. I, I promise we can be great that we have all these great attributes. But if it weren't for just this one terrible thing that happened to us that made us take another path, I think that's all very interesting stuff to be explored. I don't know that we're necessarily getting that out of this episode because it really is more about the creepy personal attachment that Sulan has, which is fine because that, that played well here. I feel like this encounter was more sinister partly because of that because of the focus on Sulan and the Vidians now we get this glimpse at how much they've industrialized what they do with regard to terrorizing and using the people that they encounter something really hideous about that and, and they you know they do these moments where they kind of try to humanize Sulan a little so should we care about their desperate measures to save themselves, you know, how should we treat them, given what has transpired up to now, which has been a horror show after a horror show? If you're talking about Janeway being kind of pushed into an uncomfortable corner, like how how would a guy like Picard, who says you negotiate and then you negotiate and then you negotiate again, how would somebody like that? treat a situation like this, like, hey, look, we we had these medical resources. You, oh, you want organs? Sorry, we're going to bomb you into oblivion mm. if you don't take these options for us. But I, I feel like with these two episodes that we've gotten of the Vidians, maybe they just haven't gone deep enough uh, to, to maybe make a really good assessment of how we treat uh, our enemies, the, those who would uh, do something so hideous and still want some kind of understanding. Which is. I think the really interesting part about them. Then you land on Bolana, And we have this interesting nature versus nurture thing. Where we're back to some of those similar lessons as well. Uh, that we got from the enemy within. That the two halves can't exist apart. That they only work as a whole. Is that the case though? Because it, 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 at that point. Which parts are the right ones then? Which aspects need to be amped up? Which aspects need to be repressed a little? How much moderation do they need? Would human Balana forever feel incomplete without Klingon Balana or vice versa? If that were to be one of the outcomes here, um, would she literally die? Would she actually learn? to have courage? Would she learn to have these other aspects of the Klingon half brings to her? Um, So is it a matter then of nature entirely over nurture here? I mean, we're basically saying that Klingon DNA compels B'Elanna to be who she is, um, which is an interesting idea. I don't think the show necessarily comes down on a particular side about what is good or bad about that, but literally she will die if she can't have that part of herself again. Mm-hmm. I I wonder if you remove that element, can can she actually learn and grow and evolve? And does that purely human Balana have value and have strength and have abilities to grow? Or is it just a convenient out to say like, nope, it's in your genes, you got to have it carry on. So... No, no really easy answers there, but I think those
3: are kind of interesting questions posed by this episode. Uh, how about you, Norman? Well, I, I like that you're framing uh, B'Elanna's plight with DNA versus kind of like the painting experience of being Klingon and half-human, because mm. I was going to go into a little bit more uh, description of The Enemy Within, but we've really covered that quite well. And I think that for a lot of fans of a certain generation, specifically the, the, the original series fans, you know The Enemy Within implicitly. And, you You know, The Enemy Within has been explored throughout the course of Star Trek and different Star Trek series and discussions. But I want to bring up another element that kind of is uh, springboarded off of The Enemy enemy Within, and that's Kirk's um, one of Kirk's final soliloquies in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, when he's uh, he's presented with all of these different aspects of personal pain by Cybok. And Mm. Kirk says, you know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with a wave of a magic wand. They're the things that we carry with us. The things that make us who we are if we lose them we lose ourselves And he said I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain classic classic line. Yes, but uh, Then we kind of book in this with what balana says at the end about her situation I came to admire a lot of things about her her strength her bravery I guess it I just have to accept the fact that i'll spend the rest of my life fighting with her so mm. I find that the most fascinating moral implication of this and something that I'm still kind of struggling with to find a way forward and sifting all of this out, and maybe you can or the audience can help me with this, Klingon B'Elanna, the part that was extracted at the beginning, was DNA sequencing. Yeah. Right? Right. DNA sequencing is completely different than life experience. (laughs) Yes.
2: Right? Yes. So
3: the life experience of balana as a half klingon half human being if you pull the dna sequence out of that of 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 balana as a whole and then recreate it as a construct you're creating essentially just genetic tissue of Mm -hmm. that being you're not recreating the experience the anguish the pain the shame all of that that went along with that klingon half Of Balana. It resides in her human half because that human half was not extracted and then refabricated. So, the questions from a moral standpoint that still plague me or phage me (laughs) aren't we as living beings more than just a DNA sequence that can be manipulated? Aren't we more? Than just a genetic code that can be filtered and processed through the Genitron 2000. Yeah, aren't we more than just emotions that can be waved away by a magic wand? In the end, no matter how developed the science, no matter how advanced the technology, you can't genetically recreate the moments that created the complexity and nuanced experience of a lifetime. Yes, that, that's it, wh- it, you know that's it, exactly. why I think this episode yeah. misses that mark entirely.
2: Yeah, and, and well, and, and there you are. So that that is the huge sci-fi premise that you have to swallow. It was almost easier to swallow it when you can say it was a transporter accident mm-hmm. because it just did this thing and it created two of them. Uh, not that we need to go deeply into what the Genitron 2000 does or doesn't do, but you almost have to assume like, oh, okay, it creates a copy like like we're using genetic sequencing, but somehow we're also like transporting that person that mm-hmm. the, the those uh, you know neural patterns into that thing because otherwise, like you said, you're just creating an, an empty DNA shell. And, and that's what's so strange about this, because then it's like, no, no, no. The, the memories, the experiences, the impulses belong to that DNA, which is just the meat. It's it, it's just the, the, the physical stuff, you know. Um, it's a very odd premise to try to wrap your head around. And... I, I Maybe this is one of those episodes where we say, okay, the sci-fi of it, you almost have to ignore and you just have to say, look, it's Bellana's journey into her own very mixed, uh, uh, very self-defeating feelings about herself. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And they went this very long way to get there,
3: but they did it in a dramatic way and the sci-fi of it we can't pick apart <laughs> yeah you know I wish in the end that there was just a little bit more time to try and address these questions at the end of this episode because unfortunately this is one of those occasions one of those tropes in Star Trek where you have this great setup and you have this wonderful uh, this, this complex story with Bolan, and all of a sudden it gets kind of 90s Trek troped at the end and just said okay we have it wrapped up let's move on to the next story and that's what we'll do.
2: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and
3: discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Jitrell.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. If Voyager didn't go to all of these places, would we have had to see all of these faces? And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.
0: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration Event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.